The title of this morning's message is Let Grace Be With You. We'll be looking at the last verse in the letter of Colossians. We have been studying Colossians for five months, and we have come to the end of this precious book, and what a joy it has been to study it and to spend time in this truth that is life-changing. Someone asked me after last Sunday's service, what are we going to study next? And I said, well, we're not done with Colossians. We've got one verse to go. And I think perhaps one of the more important messages that I think God has for us today. We live in a world, you and I do, that is broken in many, many different ways. We know it's broken by sin. We see the evidence of it all around us. And unfortunately, we also see it inside of us. When I look at other nations, it's not hard to see an absence of love and grace. People in the name of a God killing other people for their faith in a God. People who, in the name of a God, will blow themselves up or destroy themselves, thinking that brings God pleasure. When I come to our nation, and you just, you don't have to look very far, you can open a newspaper, turn on the television, and you see people instantly responding to anything anyone says with great criticism. as we tend to shred the reputations, the ideas, and the thoughts of anyone that we disagree with. And it doesn't get better when you get to church. How many times I have sat in a church meeting and watched people who claim the name of Christ absolutely respond with everything but love to someone with whom they disagree. And the absence of grace is killing the church. And so when we come to these verses, it's fascinating, it's interesting, it's educational, but when we read these verses today, we are truly reading about something that we desperately need in Wynn Baptist Church, in every home in Cross County all over our land and around our world. The title of this morning's message is Let Grace Be With You. We didn't talk about it when we began this study, but in Colossians chapter 1, the last part of verse 2, the apostle writes, Grace to you. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he starts the letter. And now in verse 18 of chapter 4, as he concludes the letter, he says, This salutation by my own hand, Paul. In that day and time, it was not uncommon for someone else to write for you when you dictated. And Paul had, obviously, at this moment, an amanuensis, a secretary, who was writing the book of Colossians as he dictated it to them. But he wanted them to know that it came from him, and so he took the pen at that point from the scribe, and he wrote it down. And he said, this salutation by my own hand, Paul. So they'd know it was from him. Remember my chains, a reminder of the conditions in which the letter was written, a reminder to pray for him. But then he closes it this way, grace be with you. Grace be with you. As we looked at the first half of Colossians, we discovered all that God has done the moment someone trusts Christ. In chapter 1 in particular, we discovered what a real Christian is. A real Christian is someone that God has changed, whom God has redeemed, whom God has made holy to himself, someone who is forever different because of what God has done. And then when we came to chapters 3 and 4, we discovered how we are to live in response to what God has done. If these things about me are true, that God has accomplished, how then do I live? And as the chapter opened, he said, all of your focus, all of your attention in life needs to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. Set your mind on things above. Your life is in Christ. Your life is not here. And then he says, because of that, you've got to, and we called it the sin monster, but you've got to put to death your members which are on the earth. I think we need to make a t-shirt out of that. So many people have still talking about starving the sin monster. And we are to say no to the island and of sinful desire that still lives in every one of us. And in the face of that, we are to stop and do business with old sin habits and form new godly habits. We are to let Christ have access to every part of our heart. We are to do everything we do in the name of Jesus Christ we are to build relationships. We talked about that last week. And then he says, grace be with you. What does the apostle Paul mean? What does grace be with you mean? First, it means that grace is needed now. Grace is needed now. And like so many other things that we learn in Scripture, the only time that you can live for God is right now. The only time I can walk in the Spirit is right now. And the only time I can let grace be with me is right now. There's an immediacy to Paul's words and what he says. Paul is saying that you need grace. Grace is used over 150 times in the New Testament, but very little in the Gospels. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses the word grace of those 150 times. He uses it 114 times in the 13 letters that he wrote. 
He opens every letter the same way, just like he opened this one. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the source of the grace that we desperately need. I can't conjure it up. I can't make it up. I can't pretend when it comes to grace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it the same way in all 13 letters. With Timothy and Titus, he adds the word grace and mercy and peace to you. But the words are there. And he's saying something to us as he opens the letter. He ends every letter with the same phrase. The same phrase we see here in verse 18. He says, grace be with you. And sometimes he adds other things to that. But it's at the end of every letter. Grace be with you. Literally, grace with you. And not just any grace. Not just any idea. These are not just kind words and nice things you say like goodbye, hello, and how are you. He says the grace in the original language. It's a very specific grace. Not just any grace. He says the grace be with you. What is grace? By definition, grace is an attitude or action of undeserved favor or generosity. In the ancient world, when grace was used in this way, it was talking about a gratuitous act on the part of someone towards someone else. That means that there was no reason for the favor that someone was showing someone else. There's nothing in you that compels it. Nothing that causes a person to give this favor or this grace. John Newton, who's the author of Amazing Grace, once wrote, If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. Third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. There was no reason in his mind, and there should be no reason in our minds, why God would show grace to us. There are no requirements for favor. There's nothing he says you must do first. His posture towards you and me is grace. Nothing earns it. There are no restrictions for favor, for grace. Nothing is held back. God owes us nothing, but he gives us everything. Now, there are two things you need to understand about grace. First, God loves and favors his son. The perfect, sinless, wonderful son of God, Jesus Christ. He never offended the Father. Everything he said, everything he did, brought pleasure to Father. In Matthew 3, at his baptism, God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God showers favor and grace on his Son. But the second thing you need to know about grace is that the same favor God has for his Son is freely given to the person who is in Christ That's how you and I come to know grace. That's how you and I experience grace, is through 
being in Christ. No matter what you are, where you are from, what you have done, God is prepared to shower his grace on you through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, how is that? I'm glad you asked. I brought with me a cookie jar. How many of you had a cookie jar in your kitchen when you were growing up? Oh, what a sad lot. (laughs) Let's try that again. How many of you had a cookie jar in your house when you were growing up? That's a little better. How many of you have one now in your house? I'll see you after lunch. Okay? And the cookie jar was was wonderful when we were kids. That's where you kind of, I don't know if you ever did this, but sometimes they were reserved for after dinner or after meals. And maybe, I'm sure none of you ever did this, you snuck in when no one was looking, and you, you got into the cookie jar, and you got one. And, and if you had one of those old-timey cookie jars, it had a ceramic exterior that you couldn't see into like this one. And so you didn't know what was always in there. You didn't know what kind of cookies you would find. You just knew that the jar was one of your favorite things. And if you could get into the jar, whatever was in the jar was going to be great, was going to be wonderful. And what God has done when he saves a soul In uniting that person with Christ, he, in effect, puts you in Christ. He puts you in his most favorite place in the universe, in Christ. And whoever is in Christ is a favored one of Almighty God. And that's how he does it. He loves his son and showers favor on him. And any person who is in Christ receives that same favor. That's the way he showers us with grace. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul explains this very principle. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now let me say a word about that. Faith is how you and I enter Christ, if you will. Everything necessary for our salvation is in Christ. If you have the Son John says in his little letter of 1 John, if you have the Son, you have life. Eternal life is in Jesus Christ. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And so when you and I put our trust in Christ, we are putting our trust in the fact that Jesus took my place on the cross. He died for my sins. And if I put my trust, I abandon myself to his leadership, his lordship, his salvation of me then through that faith, God unites us with Christ. And at that moment, all my sins are not only washed away, they are buried and forgotten. And he no longer sees us as the sinner we were, but he sees us in his Son. Therefore, having been justified by faith, made right with God by faith, we possess right now, we have peace with God. Not an experiential peace at this point, but a peace is a fact, a cessation of hostility between yourself and between God. We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? Being in the jar, the cookie jar, being in Christ, through whom? Also, we have access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand. You know, in the Old Testament, you couldn't just walk into the presence of God. There was a tabernacle. It was holy. No one could go in there. There was a temple. It was holy. No one could go in there. But now in Christ, we have access into the very presence of God, and we have His favor. And we are all that know Christ. We are standing under the favor of Almighty God. And everything that happens in your life as a believer is a consequence of the grace of God. We need that now. We need to know it now. So not only do you need it now, but grace be with you also means that grace changes you when it's with you. Grace changes you when it's with you. Grace is something, if you understand this verse correctly, grace in this sense is something you can have with you or not have with you. I am not talking about losing your salvation. I'm not talking about falling from grace. But I am talking about the experience of the favor of God and the experience of what he wants to accomplish in your life. What difference does it make if grace is with you in this sense or not? Paul speaks of grace not as a theological concept, but as an active presence and force in his life. He uses the same grace with me expression in only one other place outside of the ending of his letters. So if you want to understand grace be with you, you need to understand what he meant when he said grace is with me. We find that only in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You remember what he was like. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It did something to me. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, who was laboring, but the grace of God which was with me. Grace is not some nice-sounding, churchy language. It does something. Paul says specifically in two things about grace. First, grace transforms. Grace transforms. The change it made in Paul transformed him from a hater and a persecutor of the church to someone who was spreading the gospel. It transforms. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's all you and I can ever say about who we are. That whatever good you see in me, whatever good I ever accomplish, whatever you think is right or precious about you or anyone else is a result of the favor of God. Secondly, grace not only transforms, it empowers. Grace empowers. He's referring to the ability that God gave him. He said, I labored, but it wasn't me, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. That was the source of the power. That was the source that enabled me to endure sleepless nights and persecution myself and, and shipwrecks and beatings and stonings. It was the grace of God within me. 
How far can you travel in a gallon of gas? Well, the answer depends on the vehicle. If you're in a moped, you can go 120 miles. I don't see those much in wind. If you have a Harley-Davidson, maybe 50 miles. A Model A Ford, 25 miles. A Toyota Prius Hybrid, 51 miles, gallon of gas. A light airplane like a Piper Cherokee, you can go 15 miles on a gallon of gas. A 747 jumbo jet, you can go two-tenths of a mile. A Saturn rocket to put a man on the moon can take you 10 inches on a gallon of gas. But how far can grace take you? Grace can take you all the way through this life and into eternity. Grace transforms and grace empowers. When Paul was struggling to deal with the pressures of this life, good days and bad days, he said the grace of God, the grace of God was changing him and giving him power. Well, not only do you need it now, and not only does grace change you, but grace be with you also means that grace must be a way of life. Grace must be a way of life. This is the missing component in our nation in our churches. That's why Paul says grace to you in the beginning and grace be with you at the end of the letter. When he says grace be with you at the beginning, he's saying, watch out now. You're about to read something that is from God. Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this thing that you are about to receive, grace to you, it's going to change you. It's going to empower you. Grace to you. And then when you finish the letter, he says, grace be with you. This thing that you've read, now you've got it. Now you live it. Now you apply it. You've heard it. It should change you. You've heard it. It should give you a new way to live. When he says, grace be with you, he's saying as you absorb and apply this letter, May the transforming and empowering grace become a reality in your life. If grace is God's favor towards his child, then to live as a person where grace is with you means you live constantly in the presence of the God who is giving you favor how can grace this favor of God become an active reality in my life how first I must remind myself daily of his grace Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say you have to learn as a Christian to talk to yourself how many of y'all talk to yourself don't raise your hand Questions, what do you talk to yourself about? And we need to talk to ourselves about grace. We need to remind ourselves that we are men and women and young men and women and boys and girls who are standing under the favor of God. I want to give you an example from the Old Testament this morning of what it means to remind yourself daily of his favor. It's found in Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. The verse will be on the screen. This is a moment where Joshua is becoming the leader of the people of Israel. 
Moses is dead. For 40 years, Joshua never had to make a decision. He, all he had to do was do what Moses told him to do. And for 40 years, he watched Moses take criticism and interact with people as leaders must do. He watched Moses carry those burdens. I think Joshua felt some anxiety about that. Not in these verses, but in the ones you can read later, God repeatedly tells Joshua not to be afraid. And I believe God told him that because he was afraid. Verse 2 of Joshua 1. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, that is future tense, I have given you, that is past tense. As I said to Moses, and then in verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. God is saying to Joshua, as I was with Moses, the same favor I showed him, I am going to show you. How? He says, I will not leave you or forsake you. Not for a day, not for a week, not for a minute, not for a second. I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. Everywhere you go, I have already given it to you. No one can stand against you because I am with you. I will not forsake you. Does that sound familiar? When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he also ended it by saying, I am with you always even to the end of the age. If he is always with me, and he is a God who gives favor, I need to remind myself every day of the grace of God. Always standing in a shower of his favor. Not worthy. No reason for it. Nothing he asked me to do in return. Nothing in me worthy of it. The God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who needs nothing, showers favor on you and me. And I got to remind myself of that every day. There's something else I want you to notice. In verse 3 of this passage, he says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Now notice God did not say the sole of your shoe. You say, you're stretching it, Pastor. Hang with me. God did not say the sole of the shoe. He said the sole of the foot. He's saying something very profound. 
And if you remember the first time that God met Moses, what did he do to Moses? He said, Moses, take off your shoes. Listen, Exodus 3, verses 4 to 5. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. As Moses stood there with the sole of his bare foot on holy ground, what was he doing? He was responding to the presence of God. The barefoot on the ground was a symbol of the presence of God. God was saying to Joshua, everywhere you go, Joshua, the bare sole of your foot is on the ground. If you are recognizing me in my presence, the presence of the mighty one, if you are doing that, wherever the bare sole of your foot is on the ground, the presence of the mighty one, you will experience my grace and victory everywhere you go. I think we need to remind ourselves of that every day. But to practice his presence, we need to walk as Joshua did. And here's the last statement. I must treat every place I go as holy ground. You and I really need a kind of double vision. The capacity to see what is seen but also to recognize what is not seen. That at this moment I'm standing on a carpeted surface on a platform in a brick and mortar structure, but I have the capacity, and so do you, to recognize that this is holy ground because every moment of every day we are standing under the favor of God in his presence. Last July, In a hospital room, a woman that used to sit back there, Ann Nethery, was having tests done to discover later that she had cancer. Mary Baker, one of our members, went by to see her. 17 years, her friend, but felt strongly that God was leading her to share Christ with Anne. She shared the good news of Jesus Christ with Anne Nethery. And after Anne listened, she said, okay, I'm ready. And she put her faith in Jesus Christ. And immediately the old Anne Nethery died. And a new Anne Nethery rose up in that hospital room. A few days later, she got word that she had cancer. And as it progressed week by week and month by month, her body, her physical body was dying. But her spirit was alive in the presence of God. And members of this church Gina Clegg's class, Linda Tolan's Bible study group, and others watched as this woman grew in faith 
and she trusted God, and her prayers were answered again and again, and she loved God's Word and grew in her knowledge of God's Word, but more than anything else, she grew in understanding of God's love for her, and it changed her. Whenever you got to talk to Ann Nethery, you didn't see a woman being defeated by cancer and dying a physical death. But as many testified this past Friday at her funeral, they saw someone who was radiant. Radiant. She knew the grace of God. Grace be with you. The Lord Jesus Christ could have revealed his Father to us in many, many different ways. But of all the ways he could have described God, the number one way that he addressed God, the number one way that he revealed God to us was his Father. The Gospels say little about grace, but much about the Father. The Apostle Paul, understanding that God is a Father, grace to you from God our Father, he said. Knowing that God is a Father, he understood a Father's heart. And what made God as Father, what was so important about that designation that we needed most to know? And so 114 times he talks to us about grace. And we need to know the grace of God, but you cannot claim the Father who gives grace until you claim his son, Jesus Christ. And if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, like my sister Ann did last summer, you can trust him right now. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. The step into the grace of God is free and easy and comes without any cost to you because Christ did everything necessary for your forgiveness, everything necessary to change you, everything necessary to bring you before his Father, Jesus Christ accomplished this. By dying on the cross for your sins, he took away everything in your life that was displeasing to the Father, all your sins. And this morning, if you will turn from your life without God, if you will seek forgiveness for your sins and turn from a life without God and turn to Him and cry out to Him and say, Lord, I am trusting Jesus Christ and His finished work for me on the cross and nothing else, please save me. He will hear your cry and forgive your sins and you will be standing in grace from that moment until eternity. A prayer for salvation from the heart might be something like this. Father, Father, thank you for what I'm hearing and what I'm learning. Thank you that even though I have messed up my life, even though I have sinned, and even though I'm so tired of living the way I've been living, you still love me and you still want me. And so, Lord, as best I know how, I turn from my sin. And I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. 
And I'm putting my faith, my trust in him. And I ask you, Lord, to take my life, direct my life, fill my life from this day forward and for all time. Amen.